0: Thanks for listening to RQ's Device Love Podcast. You're about to listen to an audio only
1: version of our weekly show, Device Love Live. If you're interested in having your questions answered live on a future episode, visit rqteam.com to see what topics are coming up and to register. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion, and if you do, please subscribe.
2: Uh, so, for the sake of the discussion today, I'm referring to both our former FDAers and our former notified body reps as former regulators. Uh, it'd be a little easier that way. I think Steve already covered how many years each of a, each of you guys were in your regulator role. So, why don't we start with what do you miss about being on the regulator side of the sort of wall <laughs> we refer to? Anybody want to go first?
1: Sure, I can go first. Um, so. I think what I miss the most is getting to see the the cutting edge of of everything first, uh, just sort of seeing what companies are working on, what they have in the works that's cutting edge and novel. I always enjoyed seeing that aspect of it when I was at FDA, um, and also they have they have great people working there. So I have a lot of friends that are still there. They're all very driven, smart, the kind of folks who will drop anything to to help you, kind of like R and Q. Um, so it's I definitely miss the people the most.
3: How about you, Kevin. Yeah, dovetailing off Brian's, I think besides the breadth of devices that you're exposed to in the FDA, I think I also miss the amount of information that we have available on the inside track. Um, definitely didn't appreciate what databases we had while I was there until I had to put together submissions outside and try to dig things through the internet or, you know, <laughs> you know, manufacturers, old, uh, DHFs. But I think the, the amount of information FDA has on their internal databases are just, it was, it's so much, and definitely, you know, miss it a lot.
2: How about you, ibam
3: In addition
4: to what the two previous speakers covered, I think the fact that you could leverage that breadth and depth of experience and make a judgment call, and the manufacturer knows this is it. They don't start arguing with you because if they argue with you, they'll be getting no, yeah, very fast.
2: Wow, uh, Ibam, I don't you might have been in a special role at the notified body to never have anybody argue with you. Well, <laughs> Ron.
4: They, they may argue, but it doesn't mean they're gonna get it right. Of course, if it turns out, if it turns out that you know they had uh, a viable proposition and all that, then of course, you will look for a, a medium medium ground but my mm-hmm. point is in this role you offer the best professional advice possible and sometimes the, the client could just ignore you and go do whatever they think is right only to come back to you once they've hit that brick wall and they're notified it slaps their wrists that's it
2: <laughs> what do you think ron
0: yeah you know i miss the uh kind of the dynamic um within a within a company's like management team to see the uh interaction with, uh, you know, your management rep and then your, you know, the top management who, you know, sometimes they're very engaged. Other times they're, they're, they're not at all. And, and many times they're just clueless. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of miss, um, I, I miss interacting at that level with, with the client. And, um, you know, th- they always, um, I, I always liked when people like got defensive. I actually enjoyed not an argument per se, but I used to encourage people, Hey, this is your quality system. These are your requirements. Stand up for it. If, if you know, if you feel like you're meeting the requirement, tell me why. And, you know, let, let's, let's go through it. So I, I always encourage people to try to stick up for, for what they do every day and uh, make a good case.
2: Good. So what, so what do you love about being an industry? You know, what do you prefer as compared to when you were on the regulatory side? How about you, Ron? We'll go backwards.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I've been on both sides, you know, now you know consulting and I was even uh, in industry as a management rep you know many years ago so i 've seen all sides of the table um, but you know I, I think what I like about uh, about this side of the table and consulting is you can really help them to to meet the requirements and help develop solutions to uh, to meet you know all the requirements that they have so um, whereas on the notified body side, you can only go so far you can't consult and you know sometimes you have to hold your tongue and um, whether you want to help them or yell at them or, or whatever.
4: So
2: that's <laughs> <laughs> you, Brian.
0: Um, so I like seeing just how the other side of the world works.
1: Um, so at FDA, it's at least in the pre-market review space, it's all about the 510K or the PMA or the IDE. You see the output of so much work that happened leading up to that point. So uh, getting to see how that actually works is is very exciting. Um, and then also getting exposure to international markets. Obviously mm-hmm. FDA is US centric, so um, just seeing how you get devices to Europe, to China to go down the list, um, that you know that was a, a knowledge gap that I had at FDA that' I'm, I'm still filling today and that's probably one of the more exciting sort of learning experiences that I'm that I'm still having.
2: Kevin?
3: I think. definitely agree. I think the interconnectivity of all the regulatory submissions, seeing it on this side is just so much more vast, I guess. Like, I guess putting together regulatory strategies now, you have to take into account like business risks, mm-hmm. medical advice, legal, a bunch of different different factors besides just like, what's the best way to get this through FDA, right? It could be just um, some things we've worked on is like, yes, we can get this through FDA, but we need to address it also from the quality side. And I think just factoring all of this to regulatory strategy versus Um at the HI just reviewing it to make sure it's Mm -hmm. you know it's acceptable that um, I think is really interesting. So
2: Ibn, you had decades at the notified body and now a few months under your belt in industry. What do you think?
4: Well, prior to joining the notified body, I also worked in industry, actually designing developing products. So I've seen it all from a manufacturer's side, from a regulator's side, and now Um, in a consultancy role. Uh, What I really like about this role is being able to actually interpret the intent of the regulations. Because oftentimes, in my experience, most manufacturers want to do the right thing. But they're sometimes not clear as to what the intent is. What is good enough? Am I going overboard? Is this just under? What is it? So it's always striking that happy medium. I think this role, allows me to do that. Mm -hmm. So,
2: Ibam, what did you always want to say to manufacturers but you couldn't when you were a notified body?
4: (laughs) As I said, explaining the intent and Mm -hmm. giving the best opinion as to how you could demonstrate compliance. We all know what we do is man-made. It will never be as good as the real thing. I mean, think, I'll give you an instance. Take a hip joint. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Chopping off man-made bone, natural, and then sticking in a lump of metal and expecting it to work as the real thing. That's a tall order. How Mm -hmm. do you make sure that you are compliant with the law that makes it difficult for the notified body to write a non-conformity? Because after all, it's all about continuous improvement. When you look back to how we did things 10 years ago, five years ago, and today, they're completely different. The bar keeps Mm -hmm. getting higher. So those are the sort of things that I really enjoy.
2: Kevin, what what did you always want to say to the manufacturers, but you couldn't?
3: So I think hmm, one thing that's that's hard, I think there's a lot, but one thing I guess if I had to choose, I think is that your relationships, the way you view relationships with FDA, I feel like should not be one that's combative. Because FDA, like a lot of people think like, oh, we should, you know, withhold information or like FDA is trying to get, keep us off the market. And I don't really think that's FDA's goal. Um, and I think FDA, you should be, Not afraid to push back at certain times. I mean, kind of know when to push back, but it is more of a relationship, I think, of dealing with FDA um, and getting to, like Ibn said, like a balance of getting a safe and effective product through the market. Uh, So I guess knowing when to push, knowing when not to push, but it's really cultivating that relationship with FDA, not being scared of um, and just viewing them as big bad FDA. Because I think that paradigm has shifted from the past. So,
2: you know, a question just came in from the outside that's right on that topic. So we'll just put that up since since we're on it. So beyond basic courtesy and professionalism, what behaviors or practices have you seen the best companies adhere to when interacting with the FDA or notified body? You want to start, Brian?
1: Uh, best behavior. So it's, it's the balance. I think that's probably, that's sort of a broad uh, statement, but it's knowing when Uh, too much is too much. So cultivating the relationship with your branch chief or your reviewer or your uh, division is important. And FDA wants to help. FDA can answer uh, sort of simple questions uh, quickly if they have the time to. But uh, I've seen a lot of folks in industry try to push that relationship and try to get uh, extra advice beyond just sort of simple questions. Things that um, sh- should belong in a pre-submission, for example. So I think it's uh, there's the obvious stuff like being cordial, being polite, pushing back when appropriate, and having the 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 backing for that. But um, it's it's the balance. Like if you want to have this nice ongoing um, sort of fluid relationship with the folks at FDA. Um, you need to ask the right questions and it, they need to be at the right level mm-hmm. for them to provide responses to you.
3: Yeah, completely agree. And I think part of that balance is understanding that FDA is not going to be a consultant for you. Even if you submit a pre-sub, like right. they'll, they'll, they'll answer questions, but not there. They're not there to like help you design your entire clinical trial or something. They're not going to, they're there to help and not there. They're not, they're not in replacement of like a, a consultant. So
2: how do you, you mentioned cultivating the relationship. So, if i'm a you know mid-sized company or a little smaller how do i cultivate the relationship with a branch chief
1: so i mean their their numbers are online um if you have a submission uh that that you're prepping um i feel like it's totally appropriate to just reach out and if you've never had an interaction with fda before or you haven't had one in a while uh, it's perfectly reasonable to, to reach out to the branch chief, or when you find out who your reviewer is, uh, to reach out to them and say that you're going to be there working with them if you have any questions. Um, so the, the thing that I was going to say about um, things that I wish I could have told industry um, is, you know, you're the device expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, FDA isn't necessarily that expert. You know your device better than anybody on the face of the planet, um, and so you want FDA to know that if they have any questions at all, especially if it's a novel device, that you're there to answer your questions. Basically, you're, you're FDA's consultant. You're there to help them get the file through as painlessly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, don't be afraid of FDA. I've worked with companies who have just, they've avoided interaction with mm-hmm. FDA at all costs. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, maybe FDA used to be like that, Many, many years ago. I I don't know, but when I worked there, we appreciated sort of well thought out interactions that sort of didn't push the boundaries of, like Kevin said FDA becoming
3: consultants.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Yeah. I think oh, sorry.
2: No, go ahead, Kev. But,
3: well, I was gonna say, yeah, I guess maybe for like a smaller, mid-sized company, it might be hard in your first interaction, but you know, I feel like there's no company only has one five ten K, right? There'd be more and FDA does remember who they work with and what the interactions were like. So um you know, I think just building it from the start, having good interactions from the start, will just help you down the line as well.
2: Okay, that's helpful. About Ron, is it the same on the notified body side?
0: Well, actually, no, not quite. So, um, you know, I, I I think we we've spoken before about companies being very FDA centric. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you when you go in there, they they uh, they've set up their quality management system and they have kind of a mindset of dealing with the FDA. You know. Um, in all the ways that Brian and Kevin were just talking about, and sometimes I guess maybe we weren't we weren't we weren't scary enough on the notified body side. You know, we didn't have a badge or a gun or anything like that. So,
3: um,
0: you know, I, I think sometimes they they looked at the EU requirements as somewhat secondary to, to FDA requirements. So it was up to us to 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 kind of uh, you know change their mind on that. And you know, w- one of the things that you know that prevents that. From happening, whether it's FDA or or on the notified body side, is when companies don't really put the the subject matter experts and the process owners in front of you during a, an audit or an assessment. So you know it's very frustrating to sit there and, and this poor management rep guy who's the quality manager gets stuck trying to answer questions on design control and risk, and they're afraid to bring in you know Joe engineer or the VP of R and D or or you know the CEO when necessary. So. Um, you know that they need to. I think they need to understand to deal with any regulator. Um, the best way is to have the right people in the room and in the conversation, and, and they can help guide. You know what they think is you know
4: their way of complying.
2: Ibn, did we miss anything on that?
4: I just wanted to add to the fact that the the model in Europe is definitely different, and most American manufacturers, especially the small to medium sized companies probably may not be aware of that. Notified bodies are third parties. They're independent organizations, but are tightly supervised by agencies of the sovereign nations of Europe. They are the eyes and ears of the competent authorities. The competent authorities are at the same power level as the FDA. They are the ones that can shut you down. Notified bodies can't. So the concept of having a wall, for instance, is alien to the European approach. So my point is horses for courses. When you're dealing with the FDA, clearly there are certain protocols you've got to when you're dealing with a notified body, tell your story. To Brian's earlier point, you are the expert. There's no way any third party will know your device anywhere as well as yourselves. But hopefully. The notified body reviewer or auditor has the right academic training, hopefully industry background, and has gone through uh, training of that notified body in terms of their process so the at the end of the day, as far as Europe is concerned, is, remember, you, the manufacturer, is the one affixing the EMR. It's not the notified body. The a body gives you a certificate to confirm their involvement in the conformity assessment process. So tell your story. Third party checks to make sure you are demonstrating compliance. You have objective evidence. We heard our FDA uh, colleagues say, know when to push back. Don't push back just for the sake of pushing back. Push back with objective evidence. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if it all ties up, the notified body will look for you. A halfway you know a compromise mm-hmm. if you don't do that and think you can just bulldoze your way through because you are some big medical device uh, manufacturer that ain't gonna work so point of line is be respectful of, mm-hmm. of the folks on the other side of the table they, they're not there to shut you down they're there to do a job that's the law of the land uh, be respectful have your dogs lined up tell your story thanks Evan.
2: So what would we be surprised about that you didn't understand about industry when you were there? And now that you're out, you realize like, oh, wow, I I really didn't get that. Brian, you want to start?
0: Sure.
1: Um, So as pre-market reviewers, we were all trained in uh, 21 CFR 820. So the quality system regulations, um, you know, pretty substantially, I would say, but it's Understanding how a quality system works, it, it's hard to understand on paper. It's hard to understand that in a lecture. Um, it really takes being in industry uh, for a number of years to kind of understand how that system works. And, you know, I think if I understood how that system works better while at FDA, I probably would have, uh, as part of a 510K review, uh, maybe paid more attention to inspectional histories not like I would have given a pass to company X if they had a clean history of inspections, but if company Y had a really bad history, let's say their risk management uh, procedures kept kept getting dinged, um, maybe I'd be asking them very pointed questions in a deficiency letter about uh, their risk management processes, how they cover different risks and different hazards. Um, So I think that was just my experience uh, because, a lot of folks came right out of school into FDA, and that was sort of their first job, and I had a lot of industry experience. That's not a characterization of FDA as a whole, but that was, that was my experience. It's okay. They're quality system experts there.
2: <laughs> Got it. What about you, Kevin?
3: Yeah, I was saying before, I think the interconnectivity of all these projects I don't think I understand yeah. the, like, the scope. Like I thought there was a lot of red tape in government, but now working for maybe larger companies, seeing how much red tape it is, or how many approvals you need to release a document, is maybe even more so than FDA. So I think I would be more uh, appreciative of of timelines, or maybe uh, more lenient on timelines if I knew like what went into releasing a certain document um, while I was at FDA.
2: How about you, run?
0: Well, when you think about, you know, as Brian was talking about the quality management systems, for me, they always, they always kind of exist to drive everything else. Um, And I think we're finally getting to the point where, you know, the line between quality and regulatory is getting much closer and um, and not so delineated. So, you know, I always encouraged clients to make sure your, your QMS is set up to run your business and to meet the regulatory requirements. And, you know, it's, stepping back into this role, you can really kind of help with that more, um, because in the past when they first came, you know, into being, you know, I, I went through an initial certification even before 1345, so I don't want to say how old I am, but, um, you know, it was, you know, it was always oh, we have to do this because of ISO, you know, it was like ISO was some, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain or something, um, but now I, I think there's a better understanding of, uh, you know, the integration of quality and regulatory, you know, and we've seen that even with, you know, starting with the md program where it's, you know, there's a QMS-based program to help me meet regulatory requirements and perhaps, you know, someday the, the FDA formally adopting 1345 to replace the CFR. So, you know, you're seeing all this harmonization going on.
2: Yeah, but was there anything that we'd be surprised about that you didn't understand when you were there and now you're like, oh, wow.
4: Well, Previously, having worked in a manufacturing situation, developing products, et cetera, et cetera, I always saw regulations as, if you may, a handicap to trying to place a device on the market because you come up with some ideas, great ideas, and the regulatory folks tell you, sorry, no, you need this information. In fact, it was that curiosity that primarily led me to go work for a regulator But coming back into this role, one of the things I'm finding to be really surprising is the sort of corners, sometimes or risks, shall I say, that manufacturers are willing to take. I think that is a real shock because it's not that they don't want to know. It's not that they don't know it. But sometimes someone is willing to really push the boundary out there. Uh, That has been a bit of a, and I, I do appreciate the fact that. A manufacturing organization is a full-blown commercial entity as well. They have drivers, they've got to make returns on the investment, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Got shareholders. On the other hand, the notified body, the regulators are there to make sure they only allow onto the marketplace devices that are safe, efficacious, and will perform as intended. I think that is where if you made the yin and yanging is. So mm-hmm. my point is. Manufacturers, knowing full well what the possible consequences are, sometimes, to my mind, push the boundaries a little bit too far, mm-hmm. in my opinion.
2: Is there anything now, you know, looking back that you you guys feel bad about in any way? Like you took a hard stance, but now that you're on this side, you're like, wow, maybe, maybe that was too hard of a stance. I don't know. Anybody have any stories?
1: So... I, yeah, I guess I'd, I definitely don't have any regrets. All of my decisions at FDA were 100% sound and invaluable. But um, I guess now that, I'm, that I've am that i been in industry for a while now, um, so a lot of times at FDA, we had to ask for clinical data uh, to evaluate a certain uh, part of the device, a new indication, what have you. And sometimes those decisions were, were slam dunks. The need for clinical data, it was just obvious to everybody. Uh, but a number of times it was in the gray area uh, where you can go either way. And a lot of times you erred on the side of caution and just asked for the clinical data. Um, And I think much like the quality system uh, unknowns that I had, there was also unknowns about how clinical data, what that actually means to a company and how disruptive that can be uh, financially, business-wise, all the planning that goes into it, uh obviously the money is huge um it's it's not a simple decision especially if they're just getting it in a deficiency letter and they haven't budgeted for it um so i think again i think when i asked for it it was always i was always in the right but i think i would have paused a little bit more instead of just saying okay we need it um it's it is a big request and fda needs to meet it when they when they ask
0: for it
3: so Brian, are you saying that you would have maybe considered other alternative sources? Like, are you saying that at the time maybe, or like looking back, maybe you've been like, oh, maybe clinical data or PMS data would be sufficient?
1: Or I think again, all my decisions were were perfect, but <laughs> um, it's. I think I would have given it more pause. I mean, I, I did do that research to see if there was literature yeah. that could supplement or can be used in lieu of prospective clinical data. I mean. You don't want companies to bend over backwards unnecessarily. Um, it's just kind of this. It shines a brighter light on the importance of clinical data and what it means to to ask for it. Again, sometimes you need it, um, but it's just you need to make sure that you need it when you ask for it.
2: It's good to hear your stories. It's it's, it's a hard job. You know, we always talk about what's least burdensome for industry, but it's quite a burden on your shoulders determining if something is clinically sound. So yeah, so we, yeah. we appreciate it. Any other stories anybody wants to share?
3: I, mean, I guess, I think all my interests tie back to the connectivity, but, but besides like yeah. the, the tight di- timelines, I felt like I maybe potentially gave earlier for like labeling change or something. I think something that I would maybe do different is sometimes I didn't understand necessarily sometimes why companies were making changes And seeing it on this side that some of these changes are to meet regulations in other countries. And that's Mm -hmm. why they made certain labeling formats or changes or like, did certain testing. And I'd be like, why are we doing this? And we'd go in multiple loops of companies like, all right, we did this because of this and this when they could have been like, oh, we did it to meet regulations. This is what it specifies. And done. I think we, there was a lot of delays in review submissions because of this misunderstanding. I think if I had a better picture of what they were dealing with the whole MDR rush to, I mean, before it got delayed and meeting other country regulations, that would have been very helpful, I think, for everyone involved.
2: So what other surprises have any of you had, you know, in industry, you know, that you, were, you, you wish you had known? Ron, have you been surprised by anything?
0: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm often, I was often surprised by kind of the lack of commitment by top management or the lack of knowledge of their own product lines. So they were often, you know, more on the business side and not so much on the regulatory or even the quality side. So, um, and then they weren't very good about, um, you know, giving the authority to the to the right persons to, to actually address those areas. So that used to surprise me a little bit um, in terms of uh, having a good understanding and, and even filtered down. I mean, and, and it wasn't the fault of, you know, people in engineering roles or things like that, but they just didn't seem to have the right training to, mm-hmm. to understand what they needed to do. They were just kind of given a project and said, okay, you need to meet these SOPs and these standards and these regulations. And they didn't always have a good understanding of how to, how to get there. So, you know, there was times when you kind of felt bad about, well, I got to write up this guy for risk management. Mm-hmm. He's going to be stuck coming up with a corrective action when it's really probably if he had better training or a better process around him. Uh, it would have gone a lot better.
2: So tough question. This will be especially fun for you, uh, Brian and Kevin, since you out of FDA, but now you're actually working on EU MDR projects. Um, who do you think is more conservative right now, the U.S. or the EU?
1: Oh, there's no question it's the EU right now. I mean, it's just sort of looking at a, at a project level and the amount of time invested into MDR compliance versus getting a... a 510k uh, ready. Um, you know, when we were at FDA, we or I often heard that, like you're saying before, a least burdensome approach. And if we threw the kitchen sink at a company, they would say, um, you know, now we're going to have to go to Europe. And they said said it as if it's an easier path to getting it on the market, getting some clinical data, and then coming back to the states. But it it seems like that's changed somewhat. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. I think even before I left the FDA, we were already seeing more early feasibility studies being co- sent into the FDA and more mm-hmm. IDEs being submitted. When before, those would be going to Europe first. So I definitely think that the pre market space is getting, is definitely more conservative in EU right now than mm-hmm. it is in FDA. And not that FDA, I think, has necessarily gone down, but I think the EU space just seems like it gotten much more difficult. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so Ippam, how did the notified bodies feel like when the pendulum swung and suddenly Europe is so conservative? How, how did you guys feel about that?
4: Well, we knew that the pendulum was swinging if it may higher in Europe. You may recall there was a document published by the FDA in 2012 that was highlighting devices <laughs> that caused problems in Europe that never made it uh, to the United States that really got Europeans worked up and the, the breast implant situation in France was just the objective evidence the authorities needed to really begin to ramp things up. And there was always this feeling that, um, maybe things were a little bit laxed and needed tightening. Mm-hmm. And we are now having to face a situation where the bar is definitely higher. Again, a lot of it is also down to the philosophers. For instance, the concept of substantial equivalence, 510K, does not exist in Europe. The question of least burdensome approach, what's that? Does not exist in Europe. The thing is, whatever you say, if you say, I have a widget, it's gonna take me to the moon, fine, we believe you. Show me the data. Show us your objective evidence. Show, ensure that that objective evidence is compliant with the law so when you begin to look at it through that lens then you find that the sort of general statements manufacturers could possibly get away with in the united states as it relates to fda may not necessarily fly and and notified bodies are aware of it but we have no choice but mm-hmm. bodies, remember <laughs> are mere creatures they do as they are told they have co regulators The powers belong to the competent Authority and the European Commission.
2: Do you guys think the US will swing to be conservative like the EU?
4: In my view, I think there'll be more and more convergence. The first real convergence was the METSA uh, project. Mm -hmm. For the first time, we're seeing five key jurisdictions coming together in terms of what you do as a realistic QMS. Now, Europe, it, remember, Europe is not officially in MedSAP. But the third parties that do a lot of MedSAP audits are all European-notified bodies. So in a way, Europe is in through the back door. That's a point many people don't quite realize. So Europe is in it. I see that as, as a project that has worked. Trouble is, the philosophies are different. FDA is answerable to Congress. They'll take their instructions from Congress. Well, notified bodies ultimately take their cue from the European Commission and the parliament in Brussels. So philosophically, there's going to be some areas of difference, but I see more and more uh, convergence. Take UDI for instance. When this thing came out in the the States several years ago, Europe thought we were immune. Well, guess what? It's finally caught, caught up with Europe. So I see in areas that lend themselves to cooperation, I see increased level of
3: um, convergence.
2: Kevin, hmm. yeah, you I think swing?
3: I, I think we're already starting to see it. So what we always heard was that U.S. was really strong in the pre-market side, so very difficult to get on, but our post-market may not be the fastest to act, versus in Europe, the pre-market space was easier to get on the market, but... And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was, they they had a lot more surveillance in place. And that's why like the metal on metal hips didn't affect as many people in Europe as it did in U.S. because they were able to pull it off the market a lot faster. So I think it's almost like what Ibn was saying is that we're seeing the EU increase their pre-market and then U.S. also increase their post-market, especially with this TPLC merger where there's more focus on compliance actions now and tying those compliance to pre-market having both hands talk more in the FDA.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the post market convergence and auditing MDSAP, all of that sort of alignment makes, makes a lot of sense. And that's probably where FDA will be going. On the pre market side, though, I, I guess I don't see additional uh, them becoming more conservative. Um, you know, as Ibn said, it's uh, getting our instructions or FDA getting the instructions from Congress. Congress listens to lobbyists to uh, industry groups they they have a lot of power in the states. so I, I don't see any changes say for example, to to regulations for for any sort of pre-market uh, filings that's that can be very difficult. Um, and over the past few years there's been a lot of pro-industry initiatives like um, all the guidance documents that are being rolled out. Uh, the digital health initiative, these are all pro-government, or I'm sorry, pro-industry initiatives. And I can't see them stopping those. Uh, I, I think those are all great initiatives.
2: Makes sense. Okay, we're gonna take one more audience question and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, what are your thoughts on how FDA and notified bodies will move forward in remote work settings and how it will impact their internal interactions and also external interactions with manufacturers like remote audits? Who wants to go?
0: Yeah, I can I can start that one. Um, yeah, I think go ahead. Th- there's I think like all sectors of employment right now, there's going to be a push towards some level of of more remote work, um, and so I think there are opportunities to do some assessments offsite. However, um, you know the the QMS, I think Brian mentioned before. You know, it's it's not just what it is on paper. It's it's how it kind of lives and breathes. So there are things that still have to be done, you know, on site, you know, in front of the, uh, you know, the process owners and, you know, looking at production areas and infrastructure and, you know, really, you know, having those one-on-one conversations with those people and, and looking at their process and documentation. So I, I think it's going to be a mix of, you know, doing some things off site, you know, and then having to do, you know, still a good amount of assessments on site. Yeah.
4: yeah. I think, I I can't speak for the MDA, but I could tell you, for the notified body that I work for, the concept of remote working is not new. In fact, we've been doing that since about 2004, 2005, including electronic submissions. But what's going to happen is that, I think, um, in areas of both quality and product conformity assessments that lend themselves being done remotely, I think a lot of notified bodies will take advantage. To Ron's point, there are aspects of the QMS or even product assessment that have to be conducted on site. Take a a type examination, for instance, per the requirements of Annex 10. What if the testing of that device can only be performed at the manufacturer's site witnessed by the notified body? You can't do that remotely. You've got to be there to kind mm-hmm. of soak up the atmosphere, watch out what the, what's going on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just as an example, that's what I think.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, it's one thing to look at. Uh, it's one thing to look at an inspection record on paper. It's a totally different thing to ask somebody to to set up an entire, you know, test, you know, fixtures and mm-hmm. equipment, and and then actually mm-hmm. execute the test properly and then interpret the data and, and make sure if it complies or not. So it's a totally different
4: thing. And Lisa, just to add to that point, how many times do you read a procedure and it sounds super duper? <laughs> okay. You then go into the shop floor and you talk to people that are in that area. You talk to two, three of them and they give you three versions of the same process. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. So, <laughs> that's what the quality management system is supposed to do, right? To make sure that everybody's doing things in a consistent fashion. So I don't think that's true yeah, to that. <laughs> so Ryan, and- yeah, we don't really do it that way. Yeah, <laughs> used to do that, but-
3: so we've seen company, <laughs> we've seen the notified bodies FDA still conduct virtual audits. So are you saying, are you thinking that the virtual audits may not be as robust as an in person audit then?
4: No, no. I'm Definitely saying not. some aspects will be robust, but not all aspects. Mm-hmm.
2: You've got to be on the manufacturing yeah, yeah. for some of it. Right?
4: And Kevin, I don't know if you've been, but it's a different atmosphere. Just walking in there, soaking up the atmosphere reveals so much. Hmm. Talk, talk to those guys that run the machines. They'll no, tell you hmm. how things really work. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I I can remember I can remember in an audit one time where, you know, I used to like to read the procedures first in the conference room and they say, Okay, let's go out to the yeah. warehouse and check this yeah. out. And, reading about what a great pest control program they had. Then you go out there and there's flies all over the place. The, the, you know, the garage doors are wide open. And, you know, <laughs> so it's it's a totally different thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything you guys have heard about FDA inspections changing?
3: Um, I haven't heard not much. There. I mean, but I guess the other points, I guess it'd only be pa- basically paper and desk inspections if they do it virtually. Yeah. Um, but haven't heard anything. Besides that, um, from FDA, yeah, yeah,
2: I think it's the same for manufacturing. Yeah. They're still going to have to go out in person, but for CDRH, I mean, for years, FDA has pushed us to only have like pre subs over the phone. Offered to do them quicker, shorter time frame if we would just be on the phone. Even if we go all the way there, then we'll find that half the people are calling in, and <laughs> you know, so I, mean, I feel like yeah, in terms of pre right? that's why I've
3: heard that um, pre subs. They're I think until until june or maybe end of june right now they're still trying to push for in-person because no one's in the office yet so i think yeah yeah, no getting in-person meetings for a while still
2: right right okay well thank you everybody for being on the hot seat today no it's hard to take some of those questions i appreciate the the candor i'm sure it was really informative for the the audience